I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dadly Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamlet and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite Fighter Fest Night 2. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts, where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also Raw, SmackDown, NXT, pay-per-views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz, of course, on WrestleCulture. As I said, though, joined by Hamlet and Sidgwick to review AEW Dynamite. And how did night two of Fighter Fest feel for you, Michael Sidgwick? Here's the thing about this product and where it stands right now. I was in dreamland after uh, what was an uneven show. The rumours ahead of the show itself helped place me in that mood. An absolutely incredible finish put me in that mood. But I think what brought it all home to me and there were elements of the show that I was just pretty bored and disenchanted by, if I'm being honest. And yet, if I'd had one prevailing bad thought, I've had quite a few bad thoughts about AEW this year, in truth. Interferences, them dogging it during the Saturday, Friday night era for the most part. But my one prevailing nagging issue is like, ah, oh, this company isn't totally perfect because usually they can rebound from bad apathetic Friday Night Dynamite show and it's broadly excellent but you know the fact that they've bungled Lance Archer means that this is all a bit temporary he's the one symbol of the fact that they can't do this this well for an infinite amount of time and he's back, totally reheated incredible main event, looks like a total superstar I mean what can this company do that's wrong at this point, Archer feels like 2020 Archer again. Yeah, I watched the show live last night. Of course. Of course, and I feel no regrets about it. This is the thing. I thought a lot of it was rubbish. More of it was rubbish than good, actually. And I had a blast, and I didn't care. And I was trying to reconcile that during the main event. I was probably the low guy on, but I still enjoyed it enough. Um, And it's just a hot product. Trump's hot show any day of the week. 
like every wrestling company in the world is capable every now and then of running a hot show because you can hotshot things or you can just present something that works on the night and then doesn't have any longevity or anything like that. This wasn't a hot show in and of itself. It was a hot company with its hot product having a slightly off night and the last bit not really mattering. Um, I don't think any of the in-ring particularly excelled all night. I didn't care. I don't think any of the promos, there's probably one that I'm forgetting, any of the promos were the, the best of their kind, the best of these wrestlers that we're used to, and it didn't matter. Like, the energy was amazing. The Christ, the card they've put together for next week is unbelievable. And the show wasn't so bad that you didn't have faith that next week's card won't be unbelievable, you know? Uh, on fire. And the I know, like, we'll be finding other windows to talk about this thing, but I find it hard to believe that the announcement of potentially Daniel Bryan five minutes before Dynamite went on the air <laughs> and CM Punk about six hours before Dynamite on the air doesn't feel like an accident. And that's like smart. That's not me being cynical. That's really, really smart. If what we're hearing, we're hearing it at very specific times for very specific reasons. Cool. Like they're thinking about things and it's all just, there's such a goddamn buzz around this company. And that was the prevailing thought through this entire episode of Dynamite, regardless of what was actually happening on the show. I realise that this show is an hour shorter than Monday Night Raw, but we're going to be talking a lot about what happened on this episode. But before we do that, Sige, like it, it, you talk about the sort of wave of momentum. Obviously, they've had road rages. They've had Fight Fest Night 1, Fight Fest Night 2. They've got Fight for the Fallen coming. They've got Homecoming the week after that. Then they've got the debut of Rampage either the week or two weeks after that. And then you've got all this rumours and, and expectation about Punk, about Brian. You've got All Out at the start of September. You've got the the Arthur Ashe show, of course. It's a, it's a great time to be an AEW fan, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And I don't know, like the numbers back this up. I think it was last week that AEW Dynamite beat Raw in mail 18 to 49, which is absolutely huge. But like, there's this, this romantic notion that between not only how great Dynamite is in itself, these teasers... And the reality of this wonderful, like, opened up pro wrestling world and the forbidden door, it just feels like if that goddamn Delta variant can be suppressed, <laughs> this is proper golden age stuff. Yeah. Uh, one final question before we before we dive into it. What's got uh, two thumbs speaks French in his minute wrestling predictions? Moi. Right, let's start with Chris Jericho <laughs> versus Short. I'm just, I'm just really, really in a good mood today, as you can probably tell. Ruined the AEW Dynamite review five minutes in from Michael Sidgwick. Anyway, let's talk about the first labour of Jericho. The show opened with Chris Jericho versus Sean Spears with the chairman being allowed to use a chair, but Chris Jericho not being allowed. Um, and they brawled all over the place at the start. Jericho hoys him to the outside, whips him into the barricade, does the cameraman spot, and everyone pops and loves a bit of that. But Spears equalises it because... Yeah, as I said, he's allowed to use a chair and Chris Jericho's not. He gets one from under the ring. He brought one in, but Chris Jericho jumped him straight away. Uh, cut off a J Chris Jericho springboard with it. Targeted the injured left arm of Chris Jericho. Later on, he props Spears up in the corner. The old 10 punches uh, and a top rope Frankensteiner. But uh, then he runs into a thrust kick from Spears for a two count. This time, Spears makes the most of the stipulation. Gets another chair bashes it on his back, goes to hit it over his head, but Jericho takes him down, puts him in the walls of Jericho. Spears 
fights to to reach the ropes but Jericho drags him back in the center ring looks like he's going to submit but of course Tully Blanchard distracts the official he doesn't see the submission out comes Sammy Guevara and backs up Tully sends him packing Spears grabs a chair whilst he's still in the walls twats Chris Jericho with it hits the C4 no one has kicked out of the C4 well now they have Chris Jericho kicks out uh Spears looks to set up a chair assisted C4 but Jericho gets out of it uh hits the Judas effect one two three we'll divvy this up into a two-parter for obvious reasons Sige uh we'll talk about what happened after this in a sec but what did you think of the match itself i thought it was really good obviously elevated by a crowd that was just completely and totally hopelessly in fact in love with chris jericho they almost loved him so much that they burnt themselves out for the next 30 minutes or something like that i mean i don't think the the match that followed was particularly great um but there was definitely a just an exhausted vibe around the arena once this finished, the crowd were white hot for Jericho. And I thought this was a, without being a blow away awesome match, it was just a tremendous bit of business by a master and someone who's finally realizing their value and this reputation that they've not really shown on TV yet as someone who knows what the goddamn hell they're doing. I thought this was arranged so nicely. What I really liked about it, beyond MGF's absolutely cracking line about labor. Hmm. Did he catch oh, that? Yes, I forgot to mention that. So funny. Like, I, I've said it all along. I do a fat joke every single week. It'll pop me daft because I've got a dark sense of humor, but it was legitimately really funny. Um, but what I like most about this in terms of the premise and how they executed it is that it wasn't pre- like condescending or patronizing at all. And I'm in admiration as well. I know I'm trying not to skip ahead here, but of how they've escalated this labor stuff. And how they've created like this labors thing is now one of the hottest things on the show. Well, we were gonna we were gonna do a podcast, you and I said we talked about it a few weeks ago when this first got announced about like, oh, we could speculate on what the labors of Jericho was. I'm really glad we did it because we were like, okay, well, he could do some sort of handicap match or you know, like this, a sort of stipulation that benefits his opponent and we can do the one where oh you know it's a really good bit of booking and I think you alluded to it again on Twitter uh saying that having Chris Jericho's final or you know one of his final labors being against Sammy Guevara would be a real interesting sort of morality tale but I suppose let's just dive straight into it Sige because straight off the back of it MGF grabs the microphone and says right that's it you're not allowed to have anyone come out and help you anymore if that happens the deal's off basically um, so I've tried <laughs> having a match where the stipulations don't benefit you. So how about we just get a straight up murderer in here, basically. The only MDK uh, that Chris Jericho knows about is McDonald's, Denny's and KFC, probably. That's the line MJF can have for next week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he, yeah, he brings out Nick Engage, a guy who I think he said stabbed someone in the throat or something. Uh, yes, it, huge reaction for that. He's not properly, but for a week at least, Michael Sidgwick, Nick Gage is all elite. Absolutely unbelievable. One more note on the match, just to emphasise this, because I really did think it was like a strong match. They weren't just going mad for Chris Jericho, because we saw a little bit of it in the mocks um, Carl Anderson match last week, where everyone was high as hell on mocks, but then for the first four minutes, they didn't really take Carl Anderson seriously as a challenger until they thought, you know what, he's putting his working boots on, let's react to what they're doing. So this really does underline that this was a really strong TV match. Like, they were with a Sean Spears match every single step of the goddamn way. Like, psychologically, in terms of the heat and how they cut it all off and how they arranged the chair spots, and Chris Jericho was so good at placing a weapon in a certain place, 
doing the bit where you actually try to use it because it's not just a transition, but then you don't because you're hiding it in plain sight for a spot and how they informed the finish with the chair wedged between the second and top rope. But I just generally thought it was a really well put together thing. And I think the audience reaction and how they stayed with it literally every step of the way accounts for that. But goddamn, this Nick Age thing is so unbelievably inspired. Like, it feels like we were thinking about this Labors of Jericho thing. Um, right, it's a trick that AEW used. It's a great one. It guarantees good episodic TV. It delays the match, avoids rematches, blah, 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 blah. We were looking at it like, oh, they've done this before. It's probably not going to be as good as the Cody MJF thing. Maybe it might be a diminished return. This is unbelievable. So inspired. If you're MJF, and think about this from a character perspective, if you're MJF, you're trying desperately to not fight this man. Right. And you're trying to put him through hell because you're a sociopathic knobhead, like the MGF character is. And he gets like an actual violent criminal in to do the violent criminals genre specialist match. And not only are you doing that, but it's a completely incomprehensible, amazing thing that this guy is going to be on network television. He's like a folk hero, a living legend among cult circles. And just the idea of MGF standing next to him it was this amazing brain scrambling image. And because excitement in pro wrestling begets more excitement, I can see in my head that Nick Gage won't win, but he's so violent. He's got such an aura that he will make you think he will in the course of the match, which to be fair to Spears, I never thought that was going to happen. Maybe MGF could berate him for not doing it. And then you get MGF versus Nick Gage. Like, inexplicably awesome, so creative, instantly, this storyline has been elevated from worthy, good, not the thing I'm most excited about on the show, if I'm being honest, to like a star pro wrestling storytelling, because it's not just Nick Gage and the novelty of it, but how the logic and the storytelling beats have informed the next one. Like, there's a genuine reason in kayfabe, in character, for MGF to get Nick Gage, not just what a mad match graphic this is. Like, right, okay, well, it doesn't matter if you can't play by the rules. Just has to have none and have the worst person you would want to face in a fight like this. Just glorious episodic TV storytelling, all of this. I'm not sure if I mentioned this. I probably it's a given, really. It was a no DQ match in hands with Nick Gage, obviously. But I just I'm not sure if I mentioned that as part of my recap. Uh, Hamlet, your thoughts. There's equal magic to MJF running away from Nick Gage and looking over his shoulder as there is MJF paying him off to work this match. That is like such a tremendous character detail now and then going forward. Um, I, I would so probably be a bit less generous to the match, but it was elevated by a hot crowd and they worked that crowd. So I kind of want to like take with one and then give back with another because like I wasn't like mad into the match, but like Chris Jericho especially was like willing and trying as hard as he possibly could to extract more than just a reaction for his entrance. You wanted it for the match too. And a little detail I really like is that, and I got this out of MJF on commentary, and then it was kind of revealed in the form of him having MDK, uh, Nick Gage backstage waiting for that sort of moment. Is this idea that even within his own stable, MJF's a piece of sh- Like, he doesn't really respect Sean Spears. He was hoping it would work out, but deep down he must have known it hasn't because he's got this ridiculous surprise already lined up on the stage the second the match is finished. It's not like, right, next week I'm going to have to think of something else. I thought Sean Spears would be enough. 
Like the implication is that you've been on the phone to Nick Gage. They're like, well, my man's going to fall short. He sucks. So <laughs> can you come in and do the damage? Like, I, but I think that's by design. Like he was almost patronizingly full of praise on commentary towards Sean Spears. And it almost makes me think that he wanted FTR. FTR brought Tully and Tully was like, oh, can you do something for my nephew? Like, and he's got to drag Sean Spears in. And I, I just think that's a nice detail of, of the, like ultimately the turmoil that will come from a stable ran by a sociopath like MJF. <laughs> I think that's like a, just a really neat character touch. Um, yeah, the Nick Gage reveal was unreal. Absolutely brilliant. Um, when Kenny Omega won the world title and the first thing he did was run away with Don Callis and have Don Callis say, we'll tell you all about this on impact. It was for moments like this. There were two separate thrills converging about the announcement of Nick Gage. One was that Nick Gage is going to fight Chris Jericho in a bloody no disqualification match next week. That is in itself a thrill. Here he is on impact. The other one was um, that there is no wrong answer to the question, well, who might AW bring in for this? We have never, not only we've never had opposition to WWE, but we've never had opposition where all bets are off. Mm. Like every single week, if they're talking about a mystery partner or future labors of Chris Jericho or when the trios division exists and you're looking for like Insta trios to set up because you need opponents, let's say there's no wrong answers anymore. This is moved as it felt like it was doing the second that they mentioned impact. And then again, when a Kenter appeared on dynamite, this is another extension of that. The thrill of Nick Gage appearing was yet more enhanced thrill of they can get whoever they want. The, the old rules are dead. The old, it's Vincent Mann or bust. It's your NXT roster or bust. Well, Tony Khan just likes some wrestlers. And if he wants to, he can. <laughs> or the young books have got mates. They desperately want to get a payday. Or this guy that you always really liked, who should have been still in the industry, can be back in the industry again, whatever. There's nobody that they can't go for. Like, dream as big as you want. And there is a chance you might get that favorite. And that is such an awesome feeling like to have back as a fan and to have that as as an established rule of a mainstream television wrestling show is incredible. It's like, honestly, like luxuriate in that Mm. and don't be like called a daft dreamer. If one week you want to fantasy book your favorite new Japan guy to show up because they might, because Nick Gage has just rocked up to fight Chris Jericho as the, I know we're jumping ahead as the pain maker. So they've almost done two. Because it's like, oh, we've got Nick Gage, have we? Well, you can have that New Japan psychopath as well while you're at it. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous graphic, and it's been booked with no notice for a massive TV show next week. Dream as big as you like. It is. I said this on the news, and I've said it a lot, to be fair, and I get a bit hyperbolic with it, but it's such a brilliant time to be a wrestling fan right now. I was chatting to a friend of mine who's very lapsed over the weekend, uh, and he's someone who also has been like, what's going on with this AEW sort of thing? And I was really trying to hammer home. And everyone should. You know, WWE, people, if people have stopped watching that, they should get back into that because they're throwing everything in the wall. It's gone wild. Yeah. Nah. But particularly, I was like, you need to start watching AEW. If you haven't, they'll explain stuff, not spoon feed it to you, but they'll explain stuff. You ain't just going to go, well, this is, you know, some, we won't give you any backstory to it. Because it's just such a thrilling time, as, as Hample had alluded to it there. Uh, following that huge announcement, we got a, uh, a little video by Miro just threatening everyone again. Basically, he will defend the TNT title at 
Homecoming, I think it was, he announced. Yes. Yeah, I, I've written, T- we'll defend the TNT title at, and then forgot to write that sentence, but I knew it wasn't next week, so I'm fairly certain it's homecoming. <laughs> and then we got uh, Frankie Kazarian, the elite hunter, as he was described as a little bit later on, versus Doc Gallows. You had some reservations about this pamphlet, so I'll come to you uh, in a second. I'll run through what happened. Because uh, Arian immediately goes after Doc Gallows, Carl Anderson's at ringside, so he probably needs to because he knows the numbers game is eventually going to catch up with him. Uh, he hits him with a missile dropkick, but it's Gallows, so Gallows has the power advantage. He hits him with a huge big boot to, to take control here, takes uh, Kazarian out to the floor, throws him out there, I should say, where, of course, yep, cheap shot from Carl Anderson out there. Uh, later on, Kazarian avoids uh, some uh, shots from Gallows, takes him down, clothesline, back suplex, springboard, leg drop for a near fall. Anderson gets involved again. He gets taken out with a, a leg bulldog, uh, but that allows Gallows to hit a right hand and that sit-out tree slam for the victory. Post-match, Anderson attacks and they hit him with the Magic Killer. Again, I'm going to do this in two parts, Hamlet. We'll talk about what happened post-Magic Killer in due course. But as I said, you, you were... Uh, intrigued as to which version of Doc Gallows would show up and how this would work with Frankie Kazarian. How was it? Oh, it was rubbish. Like I had my reservations and I think they were founded. Like I love, I lo- like my Kevin Nash radar beeps every time Doc Gallows is on screen. Like go and make that money off this stupid industry because you've fallen on your back enough times to earn it. But like, you're not very entertaining when you do it. Like, I, like he's, he's so funny. Like I'd want him around too. I'd have like I'd have him working at what culture if he wasn't in wrestling. He's clearly a blast. And yet, like this was this was rubbish. This didn't feel elite level wrestling. The booking was perplexing because you've pretty much killed Kazarian. I don't think that's hyperbolic to say. I think you might have killed the elite hunter as a preeminent threat. <laughs> um the audience received this as if they were watching a scabby value range version of the few they like which is the elite versus Hangman Page, et cetera. You know, like that's evidently what they really want. Evidently going to be amazing, is amazing. Um, this was kind of like the worst version of that. Neither man got a great reaction. Um, none of it felt special. None of it felt worthy. Cars getting beat didn't even feel like, it was bad booking, but it was like, it didn't leave me feeling, oh no, it was just like, oh, halfway through the match, I stopped caring. So never mind that he's been beat. Like the, maybe the elite hunter wasn't somebody to invest in all along. Um, not even a disappointment because I didn't have high expectations, but not good. Not good. Um, the promo after the fact was loads better. It was really fun. Kenny Omega not being able to do the hunter has become the hunted was a treat again. Like as funny for totally different reasons as Bangkok, baby. Like because he just knows what he's doing. Like this week's dig at WWE's overscripted wrestler is forgetting your line. Like he's got, he's got one every week. Like, you know, me and Tony were talking in the back, like he, he knows what he's doing with this character and it's great and it's funny. Um, but even that, even this page and hangman dark order runoff thing was the, we've got none of that story left to tell. Let's get to the match next week. Like that was far from rubbish, but it didn't feel anywhere near as urgent or as like era defining as last week's promo was none of this like reached any kind of apex for me. Yeah, I unironically liked Doc Gallows yesterday. Today, I ironically liked Doc Gallows. <laughs> everything about the strength or lack thereof of the match, like, he's such a funny guy. Just why can't you apply 
the ridiculous stuff you do in, say, the back of a limo with the elite, just to try and pop the books. That's what you're trying to do. Do that in a match. Now, what's wrong with you? Just <laughs> told, like, oh, you got us in trouble with the network last time, so just be the big, bruising, generic big guy. I don't understand any of this at all, if I'm being honest. The match was absolutely nothing to write home about. Any colourful aspects of Doc Gallows were just stripped away as soon as he got into the ring. Um, the crowd, the worst thing is, like, the crowd didn't care about the Elite Hunter. They've been going wild for his cameos because he does them, like, to just add chaos upon chaos, and it's just this thrilling thing. I hate to say it, but, like, it just the crowd aren't connecting with it. Mm. And it's a goddamn shame. Sometimes these things just don't connect and this for whatever reason. And I hate it because there's so much ambition behind this Elite Hunter gimmick. They've done so much work, not enough of it on Dynamite. Possibly that's the problem, Matt Jackson. Um, <laughs> hasn't happened enough on Dynamite, so it doesn't feel Dynamite worthy. Who the hell knows? It's a shame. It's so ambitious. It's been plotted so well, if not on the right platform. Uh, no one cared. Watch the generic, um, short. And if you're going to beat him down, why beat him? What's the plan here? I'm just so confused about the messaging because surely when you've got an elite hunter, the idea is you are to get behind him the more he hunts off the elite one by one by one by one and gets to Kenny in the end. Mm. He's had two matches against the elite on Dynamite and he's got beaten both of them. There was the worst trios match of the year they've done on a Friday Dynamite, and now he's beat, beat off Doc Gallows. He didn't the, even, he wasn't even back in the ring with Paige and the Dark Order when this when they ran them off. He was so odd. It was just it was such like he was so, such a bag of trash in the angle that he was just pushed off to the side. Yeah, it was just odd, perplexing to the point where as much as Kenny Omega's line was great, and I love this idea that he's legitimately playing a caricature of a WWE TV star because he's got it in his head that people have told him from day one, that he was going to fail at it. It's genuinely really, really good stuff. And yet, despite a great line to build on that character, I was just in a mood, so I couldn't even pop that much. I was just totally dumbfounded by all of this. Like, what does Kazarian do next? Mm, it was a, a weird. The moment he hit the tree slam, I was like, well, that, that looks like it's going to be the finish. It was. And yeah, it's a, it's a hitman and his kill list just failing at, at stage <laughs> one. It's really, really strange. Uh, but let's delve a little bit into what happened post-match, Sige. Uh Omega comes out flanked by Don Callis. Uh, he said uh, to Kazarian, this is what happens when you mess with the elite. Actually, he also said, was it? Welcome to my home, said the spider to the fly. <laughs> uh, he said that Kazarian had been a thorn in their side for months, but now the elite hunter has become, uh, Don Callis gets in his ear. Oh yeah, the elite hunted, thank you. Uh, so Hangman's Pages music plays, he comes out, drinking hand of course, and Callis says, not sure if you've noticed, but we got a four on one numbers advantage here. Are you stupid or are you just drunk? He doesn't care, he fights, he's, uh, he's you know, eventually being down of course, the numbers game did catch up to him, but the dark will run out to even the odds and Page hits a bookshot lariat on Carl Anderson and Sidge. Uh, you mentioned it, and when we talked about it yesterday, you were like, "Let's have one match on this show, or you know, two or three other matches." We've not got that. We've got a shed load of others, but we also have the Elite versus Hangman Page in the Dark Order next week. And I suppose if you're going to do it next week, as much as we adored what happened last week, this is a hell of a way to build to it. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think last week's angle was so strong that people were like, all right, well, that's the go-home angle for this 10-man. So this felt superfluous and damaging. The brawl itself was only okay, but I do like the specific members of the Dark Order they've selected. Like They basically are going for the absolute best match possible. You've got Silver and Reynolds, who are a great cracking undercard tag team. He'll do some great stuff in here. Grace and Anuno and... Hangman, that's that's the way to do it. Like that is the way to do it. So, again, like a lot of my enjoyment of this week's dynamite hinged on the goddamn look of next week's show. What do you reckon is going to be longer next week? Considering I'm not in control of the NXT review because I think I'll be off, or or maybe the preview. That's going to be longer. Our preview of that next week's card or the entire <laughs> review of NXT. Well, well, I'm in the driver's seat, baby, so I know what's going to happen. I think we all know the answer, don't we? Uh, Right. Uh, Team Taz video. Taz is proud of Ricky Starks winning the FTW Championship, and Starks announces they're going to have a championship celebration next week. Brian Cage sees this, gets asked about it, and says, well, that works out. I love a good celebration, me. So ominous, obviously. We we all know where that's going. Uh, And then we got Darby Allen versus Wheeler Utah. Uh, Darby Allen, of course, naturally despite how unkillable he is, has taped ribs after that insane coffin match with Ethan Page last week. Um, that allows you to get some offense in. He uh, he gets some near falls in there. Uh, he pulls, uh, drops Alan on the ropes on his ribs, of course, and then uh, puts him in an octopus hold. Alan escapes. He gets a, Utah, that is, gets a German suplex bridge for a, a two count as well. But Alan, in the end, uh, fights back. Pulls Uter off the ropes, hits a superplex. Then we get the spot with Sting and Orange Cassidy uh, doing the the Orange Cassidy kicks and and all that. And Sting even does a lazy sort of chest beat in amongst it all. Uh, Uter tries to take advantage with the distraction with a, a roll-up. But Darby Allen hits his uh, stunner. Coffin drop. One, two, three. Post-match. Uh, the Blade attacks Orange Cassidy with the Brass Knocks because, of course, they're fighting later on. Sid, you smiled greatly when I talked about the Sting Orange Cassidy thing. Uh, one of many things we probably didn't expect to see in 2021, that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about this show. I think I'm trying to crack it's a bit of a riddle, a bit of a puzzle, this show. It's like the things you were meant to care about didn't always hit the things you weren't meant to care about and just enjoying the moment was so enjoyable that the mood about this show just completely heightened. And I mean, <laughs> the Sting and Orange Cassidy thing, the second they started to look at each other, I just felt like gripped by pro wrestling magic. And that's exactly what it was. It was a ridiculous amount of fun, which you can read as nothing more than this will pop you and Sting likes Orange Cassidy. That's all it was. Like that's Sting shot first. You were? Think shot yeah, 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 yeah. Just absolutely class, irreverent, totally pointless, but still really amusing. Like, the AW, not that it sounds like a total mark about it, but it is like a dream factory. Like, it is. And they love that bit about themselves. And they just thought people were popped out for this. So why not do it? It's more, let's extract every single droplet of milk from this big mommy milker tit. That is the return of live crowds. And they did that with Sting lazily pounding his chest. What a goddamn treat. The match itself was too short to be anything, but I'd run this back for 10 minutes. It was class. It's so class that it almost verges on pointless. 
the idea is that I think Tony Khan's realized, oh, that's you, class. Yeah, he's a baby face and he's a lineless baby face, but like just some fight to two baby faces for eight minutes in total because like he's meant there were certain counters in here that for how fluffy this was and how short it was and how predictable it was, like I still got my pulse racing at like how good some of the counter wrestling was. So I would like to see this round back. I would like to see Yuta getting signed. I don't know why I watched this, but I bloody loved it. It's quite shrewd because if he does like Yuta, then you're putting him with the guy who gets the numbers and gets the eyes on him. So you're going to get Darby Allen's eyes on Yuta, aren't you? Which is good. There was a, there was a spot um, that mirrored almost Sami Zayn's uh, corner brain buster, like where he did like a suplex across the turnbuckle. And like it almost got missed or went to picture in picture because it was like just before the advert. It was the one memorable bit of the match, to be honest, that I thought was pedestrian. But I couldn't have loved Orange Cassidy and Sting anymore. Like my favourite bit of the show. Sting, again, like I feel like I'm just talking about like things that are too subjective, energies, vibes, you know, feelings rather than any kind of objective analysis of the matches or of the booking or anything like that. Um, if you allow a very small diversion, like the UK has got a very rich history with comedy, but it's also got a lot of miserable old bastards from club comics past that believe like young person's comedy to be rubbish now because it's not racist enough or it's not sexist enough or it's not homophobic. Yeah, all that sort of bollocks. Barry Cryer, comedian, comedy oh. writer, 86 year old, um, I think he is at the moment, still presents on Radio 4, still puts over young comics whenever he can, goes and watches young comics on the scene because he cares about the art and he wants it to be improved and he doesn't want to be one of them people that just because his era was the 50s, 60s and 70s that he thinks that's where comedy should be because he understands that art constantly needs to progress and move forward. Like, and I just get such a nice feeling when I'm like watching Barry Cryer talk about comedy or be a comedy performer because he still cares enough about the craft. That's Sting pissing about with Orange Cassidy. How, and like, I don't want to name his name, but you know who I'm talking about. To quote the late, great New Jack, the one that gets with a tennis racket. Like, how can he say something about the Orange Cassidy act when Sting is out there doing Orange Cassidy bits? because he gets the industry and he gets what makes it work and what makes it tick and what makes it fun. Orange Cassidy's act, and we've always said this on this podcast, is way more conventional than bad faith actors would have you believe in terms of what gets over in pro wrestling. And Sting, being in Sting, understands that and knows how to interact with that. Glorious, absolutely glorious, immediately viral, worthy of it, and I probably the highlight of the whole show. And will make this Darby Allen um, match memorable as a result, they've crafted a spot that will make this match matter. I don't know, Christ, years from now, because people will remember this. This will be in a video package sometime and we'll lovingly remember it. Absolutely spot on analysis. And I've got obscure British reference bingo on this week's podcast. So there you go. <laughs> Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is 
absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah. And under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Before we go any further, though, this podcast is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you've got no idea where it's going? Well, it's all those subscriptions. I mean, think about it. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it is endless. I'm guilty of this, so I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and it was more shocking than a wrestling betrayal. You see, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. That's rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Right, uh, let's talk Britt Baker, Nyla Rose. It was Britt Baker's first defense of the AEW Women's Championship. Again, uh, Hamflet, we have had reservations going into this. The build to it has been iffy. And, uh, well, I, I want to know uh, if you thought this match lived up to the, the hype, the, the quite right, the hype that, that Britt Baker has uh, and whether Nyla Rose has presented the right sort of a first opponent for the first title defence. Uh, in the match itself, um, Rose, uh, was, again, power game here, uh, catches Baker when she's running at a press slam, running sent on. Uh, puts her over the top rope to do that huge knee drop thing that she does. Uh, but Rebel Reba uh, pulls her off and uh, Baker flatlines Rose into the turnbuckle. Uh, again, uh, later on, Rose overpowers Baker, hits a uh, backbreaker, fall away slam sort of combo. But uh, Baker avoids that cannonball in the corner, hits a sling blade, backslide. The crowd thinks she gets a three off the back of that. Why they thought on earth that was going to be the finish, I've no idea. I'm not sure exactly what, what happened there. Uh, so Baker gets the glove and Tony, like a proud but terrified father, is going, stop messing about, get on with it, do it, stop looking at the camera. And he's right, because as Baker goes to hit the locked jaw, uh, Rose catches a ghost for a chokeslam. Uh, Baker rolls out of it, though, gets a cradle for a two count. Again, she tries to lock jaw, but Rose hits her with a Death Valley driver. Uh, that draping leg drop dive thing off the top rope uh, gets hit this time. She gets a good near fall off the back of that. Baker fights back with thrust kicks. Uh, Rose hits a chokeslam for another near fall. Baker sort of hits a crucifix bomb. Rolls uh, Rose up, another two count. Curb stomps, another two count. Uh, Rose, though, fires back up, levels her uh, with a forearm. Double down. Um, in the midst of all this, uh, Rebel Reba uh, jumps up on the uh, an apron. 
distracts the official in the midst of all this as she gets Baker the belt. Eddie Guerrero spot, but Vicky's up on the apron as well and they reverse it. So it's Baker holding the belt as Rose is down selling for her as the referee turns back around. But the match continues. Uh, Rose hits a beast bomb really close near fall. Uh, goes for another one, but Baker counters. Lockjaw, submission. Britt Baker retains the title. But what did you make of the match, Hamplet? So, like, the first 10 minutes lived down to the expectations of a really bad build. And then the last two lived up to the fact that Britt Baker is one of the biggest money-drawing stars this show has. Mm. And I can't still now work out which one matters the most because it was a bad match for the most part. It was a sloppy. Execution was poor. I still have significant concerns about their agenting of Britt Baker as a tweener, if that's what we're calling her. I, like, I do not think the current... Like, you, you can't compromise this amazing relationship she's got with the fans. That pop, that... Like, I tweeted this, so I'm going to have to use the same word again. Britt Baker's pop is exhilarating. It is exhilarating, that reaction when Britt Baker arrives. I want to buy a ticket to be in the crowd when that happens, because a star is here. DMD. The match was really sloppy for the most part. And then everybody absolutely came unglued, much like the Sheeda match, by the way, came unglued for the last two and a half minutes because it absolutely matters if Britt Baker wins or retains, in this case, the women's title. So I cannot work out if this is good for the division or not. Like, on it, like I'm still trying to figure it out now. I think there's maybe... I think if you can fix the heel babyface dynamic of this character's in-ring, you probably fix everything. Um, I feel, I hope that they're going to steer into some fantasy booking of mine from last week with a key to Marshall promo later on, because there are several wrestlers backstage waiting for an awesome match with Britt Baker. And I think Britt Baker needs an awesome match. And I think there's one that we're all thinking of that would give her the most awesome match that she could really do with right now. I was reminded of... Um, when Nia Jax punched Becky Lynch in the face, she was the hottest star in the world and she was written off television for like two months and her comeback matches was a ladder match with Asuka and Charlotte and a singles match with Asuka, which was going to protect Becky Lynch's legacy as the man in terms of in-ring. Britt Baker has not been so fortunate here in this feud with Nyla Rose. There has not been somebody that can obscure what might be received as Britt Baker's in-ring foibles, shall we say. She needs a Thunder Rosa quality match. She needs a Serena Deeb level opponent to fix these little nagging issues with this title reign because the last two minutes were everything you could want for from a champion, from a figurehead, because the crowd bit on everything, like everything. Everything pretty much from the Eddie Guerrero teases onwards and they were putty, which is perfect. But... 10-minute sloppy matches beforehand and not going to keep passing the bar. Yeah, what happened here? And they, I just, the prevailing sense I had watching this is that she's got away with it again. And mm. is that star power? Is that just an ability to drag it over the line? Or is it lucky? Like, I'm like Hamlet. I don't know where exactly to place my firm opinion. What happened here, and it happened in the Sheeta match as well, is that they had an absolutely beautiful piece of sheet music and they couldn't actually execute the notes for a large part of it. Ambitious in terms of the way it was laid out, the counters, how many moves were in it, and it felt like they were not engaged in this organic scrap. They weren't seamless and super smooth. 
in their performance, it felt like the match structure had overwhelmed them um, to the point where you could see them visibly struggling to do certain spots that they'd been asked to do or that they'd collaborated with the agents on or whatever um, for so long that even this crowd, high as hell as they were on Baker, were kind of getting lost. Like they were just like the blind leading the blind almost. Then the last three minutes happened and they were electrifying to the point where they were so good that what was trending almost to disaster levels felt like anything but wildly uneven. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if you put Baker in there with a superior worker. I don't know if she just needs more reps because there's a certain muscle memory missing with Baker in the ring that you can only get by just working and working and working and working. And with the pandemic, a dentist job, the schedule, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe shave a few minutes off here or there. Hmm. Maybe don't give a Nyla Rose as an opponent, but, you know, there aren't that many Serena Deebs. There just aren't. Um, but her sheer star power gets these things over the line in the end. Um, but I'm not as high on the reality of the title run as I was the prospect. The need to have a little bit of a look at how to correct this at this point. Three minutes off every match a bit more basic. There was a lot of like holes transitions and Baker's usually really good at it, but like, yeah, it just felt like they were actively visibly trying to recall things and talk each other through it and didn't work for, but then three minutes were ace at the end. Sage, what do you think of the uh, press conference came afterwards? It was FTR and uh, Santana and Ortiz talking about the fact that they're, they're basically the same. Uh, but Ortiz responds to FTR by saying, you're just a pit stop on the way to tag team gold. Santana pulls out photos, talks about his childhood, his family's upbringing, uh, his mother. And Dax Harwood says, uh, I care about three things, and that's God, family, and pro wrestling. The only thing left to do is show up and beat your ass. And they're going to they're gonna fight next week. We're getting the match. It's about 20 time we got the match, because this build has been okay, but protracted. And it's good, again, I call this, it's good that they're doing it in North Carolina with FTR. Again, they've arranged all of this to maximise superstar reactions to the hometown guys. This was good in terms of content, good in terms of premise, anything with a sport and flavour I like. Santana was great. Dax Harwood was great. It, however, it was so clearly not a press conference. Yeah, yeah. So there were no members of the press there. The whole staging and the blocking looked very, very fake. And it was so bizarrely edited. Oh. The editing was so awful on this. Like, there's this big emotional crescendo that Santana was trying to reach. And then the next minute, it felt so spliced in that. And what? I just, the editing was so bizarre. There was like fake the- in every way, which is so odd and suboptimal when the whole idea is these are four very real men just two of them come from very different albeit real backgrounds then to do something fake like this irrespective of how well they tried to perform it it was just too fake and it just completely undermined everything they're trying to do with this premise like on the first draft they gave this five minutes and then just beforehand or you know when the final draft of the show came out they went oh actually that's only got two minutes and like, we filmed that as a five minute segment and like you say they just had to cut it really weirdly and for you seem to be in agreement yeah, I, I found this like intensely frustrating. So if this is 
So the central premise is a press conference, you're right, you would assume it to go maybe four or five minutes, questions from these voices from off screen, to at least mimic the idea, which, so we never got that. So the press conference thing was dropped pretty much straight away and it was just some dressed up desks. Um, the cuts were so jarring that not only did they kind of ruin the flow and the momentum of the promos that the wrestlers were cutting, but it allowed you, it broke the immersion and it allowed you to think, well, hang on, what's actually going on here? Has this been cut because the quality of the verbiage wasn't good enough? Or, and I think this is more likely, has this been cut because AEW still have a massive time management problem? And I was leaning on that one because I want to give the benefit of the doubt to these great talkers and these great performers. So I'm leaning on this fact that like, or this, this belief I've got that like, oh, yet again, they've not really formatted the show all that well. They've not like the time management isn't what it could be. And then Christ almighty, what a segment next to double down on that. Like, so I'm already going into, like I'm already in a little bit of miffed because like, I really want to love this feud. And oh God, they, they must have wasted some time tonight to have to cut this. And it's like, then what I'm seeing next is what they've made time for. Like, the, like this going back to back with what came next only left me more pissed off with a few that I'm pretty invested in, in the form of FDR and Proud and Powerful, because I thought this was like the next 10 minutes of television was just a total time sink. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Uh, it was Andrade El Idolo. He's brought out by uh, Tony Schiavone. Uh, he's got a surprise. He's got a new executive consultant, and it is a man with a magnificent moustache. Uh, one Chavo Guerrero. Uh, he comes out, puts AW over, says it's the place to be. Um, looks around the changing room and sees so much talent. But with all due respect, he didn't see anybody with as much talent as Andrade. Death Triangle come out. Of course, Andrade referenced them uh, the previous week. They're all, they all come out. The, the real star of Death Triangle is there, of course, Alex Abrahantes. Um, Pac says, yeah, you mentioned our name last week. We, we hide from nobody. Andrade, thanks from com- thanks from them for coming. Uh, back and forth in Spanish, Chavo translates for Pac and, well, all the rest of us. Uh, they're all talented in Death Triangle. They should all be holding champions uh, championships. And if they want to change that, they need to listen to Andrade. Um and Andrade gets the mic and says, one question, why do you work for Pac? Why not work for Andrade El Idolo instead? And Pac said, look, Fender and Phoenix, they don't work for me. This is a family. Phoenix grabs the mic, says that they are the real faces of Latinos. Penta rants in Spanish and it's getting over. Alex says, Penta says, huge pap. Uh, why would we want to join a group with you when you're not even on our level? Death Triangle rush the ring. Andrade tells them to relax. Referees stop them from from getting in and Andrade sort of backs away flanked by his new um executive consultant Chavo Guerrero you, you were talking about this pamphlet so I'll, I'll, I'll give you the floor immediately afterwards I'll do the good bit first um I think it was okay to feel like they were foreshadowing the turn I feel like it was okay to see that at the eventual turn of the Lucha Brothers unpack that's pretty great who doesn't want to see Lucha Brothers Andrade rip it up in trios matches that could be a lot of fun maybe that's the the magic fix for Andrade because Chavo Guerrero isn't the magic fix for Andrade, not by a long shot. Like, I don't want to be Seymour Skinner doing that. It must be the children that are wrong. But Christ, what a week for the Benroy era massive. Getting no, <laughs> more, getting no more words and Chavo Guerrero in the same week. Like, if you were banging a frigging SmackDown in 2008, this is your week in mainstream professional wrestling. I just, like, I swore at the telly watching live. Like, for sake. Like, it's another fairly irrelevant X, not XWB, I don't want to use that phrase, I want to use a different one, X star being brought in, right? And here's another thing. So Chavo Guerrero is brought in in to cut promos for Andrade because 
they've decided that Andrade shouldn't be cutting promos. That's an argument for another podcast, probably. There's some good, there's some bad in Andrade's talking. But he comes in, he does what amounts to a bit of a rah-rah speech about AEW, more than for Andrade. Clearly just like Matt Stryker marking out about the fact that he's got this role, right? Which, by the way, was a dropped promise from Andrade two weeks ago, and there was a Pepe sign in the crowd. So it's as if they've been like, we're sitting on the big Chavo news, guys, for like two weeks, where like half a fan base, and I saw it happening live, is grumbling on Twitter. Oh, Jesus Christ. I don't mean this to be like a Matt Hardy-style burial of Chavo Guerrero here. It's just, I feel like he's a lot of people's not their guy, Chavo. Like, he's always had that energy. Right, Chavo Guerrero is very few people's guy, and they were presenting him as some as like as your guy, like a Jake Roberts. They were like putting them kind of in the same league. He's not like he's just not. Um, and so he comes out, and the whole premise is right. Okay, if I absolutely have to buy Chavo, it's because he's confident and competent on the microphone, so he's doing the speaking. Pack has a word, and then Andrade takes the microphone back. So Chavo is just another guy in the ring. He's another member of. He's Vincent in the NWO black and white. He's just somebody else to stand in the ring as part of a pointless entourage. And then a pull-apart brawl doesn't even happen because the brawl doesn't get started to the referees to pull apart. They break him up before a punch is thrown in anger. This segment was crap. Like, oh, and I'm, 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 I feel I don't want to like jump on a, a point I feel like I know Sidgwick's going to make, but we've had a bit of office discussion this morning at a safe distance. And I disagree with you, Wilborn, on Abrahantis. And I think Cedric does too. Oh. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that he adds. I think I liked him as a, as a commentator, guesting as getting to like hang out with the rest of us for five minutes. I don't think any of this worked. And I think it's another failed week for Andrade. And I feel the immense frustration at the fact that Zelina Vega is getting hypnotized at the top of a ladder <laughs> instead of coming out and helping her guy get over. Yeah, Siege, what do you make of the fact that the contract does read Guerrero? That name. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, right. I'm going to be nice. You know why? Because I'm a goddamn consistent guy with uh, with principles and scruples. We've long, for ages on these podcasts, when we've discussed Io Shirai and Hikaru Shida primarily, we've long campaigned for wrestlers who are very talented, who, because they don't speak English amazingly well as their native language, not getting enough TV time or a substantial enough story as a result of that. This was an attempt to correct that. It wasn't a particularly successful one, no, but I really enjoyed that. They're trying. It was just not good. And it wasn't good for several reasons. But please do something more like this. Keep it more compact and make it significantly less confusing than it really needs to be. Because as Hamfoot rightly pointed out, um, if Charleville Guerrero's there to talk, have him talk. I don't want Andrade to be muted. I don't just stand there doing nothing like... Um, Brock Lesnar cashing in his checks, but there needs to be a ratio there, and they just didn't really hit it at all. Like if he's going to do the talking, he has to do most of it, not all, but most. Alex Abraham is when he comes out, like almost in gear, doing zero miedo. I think he looks like a total dork, and I think by association, Death Triangle look ninety percent less cool. He looks like he's won a competition hmm. as a super fan. Yeah. To like at a house show to come out and like, you can be like <laughs> um mascot, he makes them look so less cool, which is such a shame because again, we were talking about this earlier. Pentagon has got such a presence and a voice that it's like the Tanahashi Atsushi Anita deal. You can't understand not speaking Japanese unless you do, obviously, a word they're saying, but you can tell 
mm. through the presence and everything else that they are amazing promos. Penta's an amazing promo. I just can't understand the promos. He's so cool. He's such a badass. Abraham is needs to go, particularly since Pac can really talk. So Abraham is, I'm sorry, it's not worked out. Penta says, I don't think it's quite getting over as much as he wants it to or they want it to. Get rid. I don't know why Andrade's got a guy with a uh, touchpad. Unless they've got something lined up. I don't know why he's there. I don't know. It's odd. Um, but being nice, like this went on too long. Chavo's not it. They teased at least a direction that either the surprise, and I think there's going to be a different one, because I'm bargaining, because this company has generated that kind of uh, blind faith at this point, as at least it pertains to this angle. Either Andrade's going to bring in some kind of dream world Forbidden Door scenario, like Roosh and Dragon Lee, which I don't think is going to happen because I think ROH is like out in the cold from all of this. Or El Hijo Del Vikingo, or, you know, AAA, like the Radio Kid or whatever, um, guys. Or Lucha Brothers are going to align with Andrade and Pac could possibly, possibly like play straight man to like two total dorks. And you can have some nice fun with that or whatever. They've teased a storyline direction or two. That's the absolute nicest possible thing I can say about something that I would really genuinely like to see done again, but much better. Two segments then uh, of what can only be described as, well, they're on the road to something happening, I I suppose. Uh, They showed a clip again. They did this last two weeks ago, two weeks ago before the uh, Brian Cage thing, where earlier on in the night... Uh, the HFO, the Hardy family office, had uh, battered uh, Marco Stump, Jurassic Express, alongside Christian Cage, ran out to make the save. And Christian was backstage with uh, Luchasaurus and Jungle Boy and suggested he team them against Angelico and Private Party next week. And then we also had QT Marshall uh, with Alex Marvez saying, don't you need to worry, Alex, I'm not going to pour a protein shake over your head. It's because it's just, Tony Schiavone, you know, sort of negged me a bit. But... Next week, I'll apologise for all that. It's happening is the best way I can describe this, Sige. What's happening? Well, we're getting potentially Michael Hamlet's booking with QT Marshall and, and Tony Schiavone and another step on what I suppose we assume is going to be the inevitable turn from Christian Cage on Jungle Boy. What did you think of both segments? I don't think much of anything. I don't know. I, I'm hoping the Serena Deep thing's happening, but... I'm not sure either way. Like QT Marshall has got an influence in that room and I'm starting to worry that he's abusing it because there are more people realistically I'd like to see. It's not a knock on QT Marshall. He's very talented. There are more talented guys who are more pop off the screen TV guys who should be utilized more than they are. Uh, The Christian Cage stuff is nice. The Hardy family office is a weird stable. They've got three tag teams in it and I know Butcher's not there so it doesn't really count. That's generous. They've still got two tag teams in it and they should be, you know, competitors in the division. It's all very odd. Um, I'm starting to really want to get past Jungle Boy versus Matt Hardy. I kind of want the turn and I know I'm being impatient and I know it'll mean more the longer it happens, blah, 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 blah. But everything around Christian Cage versus Jungle Boy is nowhere near as interesting as the direct or rather indirect teases of, oh, you bastard, are you going to turn on Jungle Boy? Like more of that, less of the pretense to the contrary. It would be quite nice 
based on the outwork everyone ethos that Christian will turn out to pretend to have had when he does turn, if he uses and abuses his relationship with Jurassic Express to eradicate like six wrestlers at once in the form of the Hardy family offices and then to turn on Jungle Boy and say, well, I, I, I don't have to outwork everyone because you helped me get rid of some of them and now I'm going to destroy you, you cheeky little bastard for stealing my title shot against Kenny Omega a couple of months back. I'd take that now. I'm, I'd... I'd I don't need much more layering, I don't think, because it doesn't feel terribly current otherwise. It doesn't feel, doesn't feel like super topical all of a sudden. Orange Cassidy versus The Blade came next. Very nearly didn't happen. The Blade came out. Orange Cassidy wasn't there for his entrance, and uh, everyone, including The Blade, assumed that the attack with the brass knucks had taken him out of the, the match, and he wanted the referee to raise his hand. But in snuck, Orange Cassidy uh, attacks him. The match jump starts. Um, Blade low later on, still using his his wily git ways, <laughs> and pretends to be injured in the corner. Bunny checks on him, the referee checks on him, uh, and that allows Blade to pop back up. Surprise! Orange takes him down, but then uh, Orange eventually counters that uh, counters the suplex into his, uh, his stunner. They fight on the top rope. Oh my days! Blade is just ridiculous sometimes. A gut wrench power bomb off the top turnbuckle that takes us into the break. Later on, Bunny tries to get involved. Chris Statlander tries to even the odds. Orange goes for a dive through the ropes onto the blade, but Blade pulls Statlander into the way. So to counteract that, Orange pushes Blade into the Bunny. Uh, blade hits a uh, running lariat, spinning tombstone pile driver. Effectively, gets a two count. Goes for the Dr. Bomb, but uh, Orange Cassidy fights that. He's been trying to hit it all the time, but his back kept giving out. He finally managed to hit the beach break. Bunny distracts the official, gets the uh, brass knucks again to the blade, but Orange dodges it and hits the orange punch for the victory. And post-match, he pops on the brass knucks himself and hits another orange punch just for good measure on the blade. Hamlet, your take. Very little. Um, I, I think they knew that this match... Didn't have a lot going for it, hence like an angle earlier on in the show to try and heat it up more for the live crowd. And I hope that that live crowd would bite, would bite on that investment and thus elevate this for the TV viewers. Um, it was it was fine. Like it was it was fine work. It was better than NXT fine because there was an atmosphere and it was better than Raw or SmackDown fine because the character's more interesting. But it was, it was like just fine for AEW. Like the standards are way higher of what you would expect from like a dynamite match between two fairly well fleshed out characters. I really like that Orange Cassidy's got the brass knuckles now. I like that he's can add a superpower to the orange punch cheekily every now and then. Um, for the man that reaches in his pocket to one day come out with the knuckles on his hand is a pretty cool payoff once in a while. So something has come from this, uh, but the rest of it I thought was pretty pedestrian. I like this. I think I would have been way higher. If this was like a uniformly great episode of wrestling TV, this would have got over so much more as the fun bit, the crowd-pleasing bit. As it happens, it followed like a not particularly great block of pro wrestling TV. So it felt way more, like way less fun than it ordinarily would have been, if that makes any sense whatsoever, because I, I really was ready for something amazing. And this was never going to be an amazing match but I was ready for something like that that just sort of almost saved the show. But viewed on its individual merits away from this kind of dampened vibe that it sort of was worked within, I really enjoyed it. The powerbomb buckle bomb thing was absolutely awesome. And what I really liked about the Brass Nook stuff is they 
in the last three or four minutes of this match, they always added an extra twist. He never quite got the brass knuckles when he thought he was going to. That came out one move later. He never made the comeback when you thought he was going to. There's always one little obstacle to get the happy ending. I thought they put a lot of work and thought into the crowd-pleasing moment to almost get the show back on track. Like This is way more fun than functional, even though it was functional. Uh, Hamlet mentioned it earlier, Sid. We didn't get your thoughts on Chris Jericho after this revealing uh, he's going to bring the most violent and dimensioned version of himself next week for that match with Nick Gage. He reveals he's going to bring the pain maker back. It was odd this. I knew exactly what they were doing and I know what Chris Jericho does. Chris Jericho apparently went to see Michael Jackson in concert like well before he was cancelled. Um, or maybe, no, no, no. He's always been cancelled. I'm not going to talk about Michael Jackson. Um, he went to see Michael Jackson in concert and he saw him do the thing. Arms outstretched. And because Michael Jackson was possibly the biggest... Was Michael Jackson the biggest megastar of our era? Of our yeah, lifetime. His, his, his death was Elvis dying, wasn't it? Yeah. You remember where you were when you heard that Michael Jackson died? He's the most weird. famous guy in the entire world when I was a kid. He's the... Yeah. Yeah. So because of this, when he did the Y2J debut, he just outright thinking it. People knew he was going to be there. People wanted him to be there. And he just decided to get a pop and illustrate his inherent star power by standing there like that. But this was filmed in such a weird way I can't articulate that I always felt it was someone dressing up like Jer- Jericho for a laugh for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, it's the pain maker. So that was a little bit more amusing than I think it was intended to be. However, the idea, the premise is fantastic. Chris Jericho, the man who is so great at reinventing himself or he's better at marketing his reinventions because some of them took a little bit too long to really get good or he took a little bit too long to abandon an old passe persona. But regardless, he's earned the right to be able to say that every single time he's on a podcast and he's got an alter ego to the fresh role that he currently plays. That's great. It implicitly puts over Nick Gage when ahead of Chris Jericho beating him I have to resort to this uh, dark place in my head or whatever you want to spin it as. All excellent, all very good. I can't wait for next week. Just to think about this as well, I've not really thought about this until now. The pain maker makes so much sense for the Nick Gage match in terms of, of a character and him having to like burrow into something else about himself to get through this. Is the labours of Jericho going to play with Chris Jericho's like wrestling CV effectively. So you've had like the champion effectively work against Sean Spears and win. And now he's going to be the pain maker. Is MJF going to dust off Lance Storm or something? And he's going to, Jericho's going to have to be a thrill seeker and out wrestle the wrestler for the night or something along those lines. You know what I mean? Is the, the possibility that this is actually foreshadowing him having to like dust off all the versions of Jericho for the labors of Jericho so that you get the very best composite for MJF? No, because. When they were doing the um, the sit down at Road Rager, some nice people decided to chant Y2J Chris Jericho because they like him. It's like, don't call me that anymore, I'm not him. Reinvented myself. Oh. I believe this on every single podcast. Oh, gosh. It's like, <laughs> right. very protective over these reinventions as Chris Jericho, mm. as I would be too if I had such an incredibly illustrious career. Maybe. As I've said before, like the harshest thing about being a pro wrestler is that the more pumps you take, the more people don't give a toss about you. It's so cruel, <laughs> inherently. And he's done really well 
to have such longevity. Everyone knows this. So when people go, oh, yeah, that's why I2J goes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> I've got a studio album since then. It's not greatest hits to her. So that's, <laughs> his, that's his mentality. Maybe one of the uh, maybe one of the labors of Jericho is going to have to sit through an entire Fozzie album. Who knows? Um, so next week it is going to be the Fame Maker versus Nick Gage. No DQ. Uh, insane lineup for five for the. I fourth. think Chris Jericho. That did, that joke doesn't work because if Chris Jericho was listening to a Fozzie album, yeah. he'd be absolutely vibing. Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair point. That I know we talked about the, ta- the Tasmanian, but the, the the cat bobbing its head. That'll be Chris Jericho listening to the Fozzie album. Uh, Sidge, I'm going to double check with you because otherwise I'm going to be really embarrassed and, and butcher his name. Hikulio? How am I saying this? Hikulio. Hikulio. Okay. Yeah. That's it. It's, yeah. It's, I haven't heard it enough to get it. Tommy Tango's brother. Uh, he's going to be facing uh, the winner of the IWGP US title match we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, you've also got FTR versus Santana on Ortiz, Christian Cage and Jurassic Express versus Private Party and Anelico. Uh, Tony Khan announcing a major new live event. Uh, and of course, as we've talked about before, the elite Kenny Omega, Young Bucks and the Good Brothers versus Hangman Page uh, and members of the Dark Order, Evil Uno, Stu Grayson, Alex Reynolds and Johnny Hungy. And then in two weeks, uh, we got a video package hyping this up immediately after this. It's going to be Cody Rhodes versus Malachi Black at AEW Homecoming. Right, Sid, let's talk about this main event. It was a, I said the word brutal quite a few times, savage death, Texas death match for the IWGP US title. John Moxley defending against Lance Archer. Uh, no DQ, last man standing rules and... Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. I'll, I'll review it and then I'll get your thoughts, Hitch. But I, I already know. Hang on. Is this a good last month standing match? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, Moxley immediately goes after Archer, of course. Uh, but uh, Moxley gets caught with a pounce, uh, following, followed by a running cannonball sent onto the floor by Archer. Uh, they go through the barricade. Uh, via a, a running shoulder tackle, they brawl into the crowd. Uh, Moxley jumps off some stuff, uh, and Archer grabs a fan and uses him as a weapon against John Moxley. Um, later on, uh, Archer dives through the ropes with the forearm, knocks Moxley down, exposes the concrete, but gets caught out uh, by Moxley and hit with a paradigm shift, which busts him wide open. And if you're thinking, oh yeah, but you know, sometimes they've they've had a bit of bit of blood in it, and it's it's, it's just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mox, Moxley made sure there was a lot of blood because he got a sodding fork and stabbed it in Archer's face. Um, Moxley's trying to cut down the big man. He puts a chair around Archer's leg, diving stomp onto that. Goes to uh, hit him with a lid of a trash can. <laughs> I don't know why it tickled me so much because I love both guys. <laughs> Bombard Lance Archer just punching it into Moxley's face was a real a real highlight for me. Back and forth punches here, uh, and Moxley just decides, I'm not sure if you're bleeding quite enough. Forks, you know, not really cutting it for me. I'll just bite your head. Bites his head, of course. Uh, Archer, that just, this tight of his own blood yet again, just fires him back up. Uh, Rick called Lariat. Uh, Moxley hits a release German, but Archer comes back with a big boot and a black hole slam. Archer sets up some chairs to hit the blackout through it. Moxley gets out and uh, audio doesn't really help here. He flips the chairs around. So rather than falling onto two bits of the seated chairs, you've now got the big edges to fall onto to really bugger up your back. Moxley, uh, in the midst all that, to to allow him to do it, hit a low blow. But Archer pops back up and chokeslams him right onto the edge of the chairs. That's going to suck. 
Uh, Moxley does make it back up, though. The referee, I think, got to about seven, eight. I think it was an eight count. Uh, Counters a running tack. Uh, hits a lariat, paradigm shift, and uh, Archer to a huge pap, of course, in his home state. Just gets straight back up at four and flips off Moxley. So Moxley goes right back to the fork and just stabs him in the head a few more times. Moxley goes under the ring and gets out those barbed wire boards. Uh, there's some tables set up outside. He pops them on both of them. He looks like he's going to win by hitting a paradigm shift on Archer off the apron through the tables and those horrific barbed wire boards. Uh, callback, of course which I'm sure Sigil will allude to in a second. But Archer uses his own weapon against him. Uh, he uses the fork, stabs Moxley, chokes Sam, chokes Samson through the tables. And uh, I think they alluded even to this on commentary. It was a combo of obviously a huge choke slam through some tables to the outside. And the fact that even if he'd been sufficiently able to just get himself up he probably couldn't because he was just pinned down because he was tied up in all the uh in all the barbed wire which i really loved and it obviously wasn't intentional this but as moxley was setting it up it like caught on the ring apron it's like that's how easy it can slice flesh but yes uh um lance archer choke slams moxley through the tables with the barbed wire on them moxley cannot answer a 10 count who could have called this oh yeah me uh lance archer is your new you IWGP US <laughs> champion. And then just as a little added bit of sauce, Hikulio, I'm really sorry, gets in the ring and he's taller than Mo Archer. What's going on? That is the close of the show. And uh, what a way to finish it, Sige. Uh, I love this. It was wild. I think Hamfler previewed it as hog wild. It was even more hog wild than I thought. Like they reimagined the dreary... Stop, start, anti-drama almost, of the last man standing match by marketing it as a Texas death match with the idea being that I don't want to be the first to die, so I'm just going to try and kill you as fast as I can. Like a last man standing match sprint. What an ingenious idea to get this match over. It was worked so furiously that I was just completely overwhelmed by the violence and the pace. Just... Thought was absolutely fantastic. The chair spot looked oh. unbelievable. The finish was, it was sort of one of those matches where there were certain things, right? If you want to really be boring and like do our jobs about it, that <laughs> Archer didn't sell that thing from the chair. I don't care. It's just too gloriously brutal. And it was so clever. Like these matches never get credit for being clever. And yes, maybe they could have registered the threat of the weapon before they put them through it. That's half the yard. But I didn't care. It was a sprint to the death because your massive Lance Archer, you will kill me. I think it did an absolutely incredible job of putting him over. Had he not even won the title? That, that's how smart he worked this was. The finish was so goddamn great because, as you said, John Moxley could get up from that just at the eight or nine, but he couldn't because he was physically incapable of doing it. I, almost ingenious in terms of how they've designed that finish to protect the John Moxley character. And as you said, like that wonderful moment of serendipity that the actual reality of how that finish worked was sort of explained by the fact that it tugged at the ring apron. Oh, uh, incredible. Like an incredible lucky moment to complement what was an incredibly fiendishly clever um, finish. The chair spot was absolutely great. My favourite bit was the fog stuff. <laughs> Where it was such a furious intensity and danger and like none of them are going to look like Abdullah tomorrow 
So there were like Moxley's an expert at this genre. You know, he was pulling it at the last second. Mm. They looked like they were trying to stab each other's brains out. It wasn't that thing where there's a bit of sleight of hand and they try and drag it across the forehead. And you know what they were doing? That's so much trust in each other that they were just going full ham on each other's foreheads. Exhilarating, dangerous, very witty. Like very, very witty. Like the bird flips, using the fan. Like Lance Archer is one of the funniest wrestlers, but he doesn't do rubbish patter. You can do all of this in the context of the physical match itself. I loved this match and I needed it to make me in a good mood, put me in a good mood after mm. Dynamite. Yeah. And again, like one more thing. Like it isn't just on WWE like stupidly cruel to beat people in their hometown because when was the last time anyone's ever written or read a list on whatculture.com? 10 times WWE made good on beating someone in their hometown or something. It, is, it just doesn't happen. Not only was it a nice thing for Archer, not only was it a fundamentally really important thing to do to make him credible because he can coast off this for the next nine months of his career, right? But it's not just the mean-spirited aspect of WWE's stupid philosophy behind having guys wrestle in their hometown. Like Every real sport indicates that having the home advantage works massively. You've got a massive crowd behind you. Like It's so logical that this would happen. Not just nice, not just really well done in a way that, oh, we can do whatever we want with Lance Archer because we've got this in the back pocket, so have him get beat to Miro. Like, oh, blah, 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 because this is going to get him back over. It's smart, it's just nice, and it makes all the goddamn sense in the world. Loved every single second of this on an intellectual and emotional level. Yeah, I was a bit of a low guy on this one. There were still things I loved about it. It was, it was that kind of match. I wasn't terribly invested. Find this formula a little bit plodding if i'm honest um and that, like i'm consistent with that i didn't love the exploding bar by death match for its content nor the original moxley omega match not particularly kenny and sammy callahan in the weekend um though this i thought was more exciting at least i don't know if the crowd in size and scale helped it um moxley worked it really well like archer was a lot of fun and it was inventive but moxley's work in this was tremendous like how we like just tweak the dimmer switch a little bit to being a heel without betraying the baby face that he needs to be the rest of the time. Like it was hard and he made it look easy. And I was like really, really impressed by that. Um, which is not, Moxley does so much right that it's almost like you kind of forget to acknowledge the other stuff that he does really well as well. And it's the kind of stuff that he wouldn't have been tested on in WWE. So this was a, like a little bit of a test that I thought he passed with flying colors how to ever so slightly parlay this perfect babyface gimmick into being a heel when it makes sense within the context of the match. And I thought he nailed it. Um, I, the big spots were really tremendous though, to be fair. Like the, the spots that made you a believer in Lance Archer were super effective. Things were looking pretty bleak for Moxley from the, I don't, and I don't think that Moxley would have taken that choke slam onto the chairs unless he was losing. I think he knows better to have included that. You needed to do something to him before dropping him in the barbed wire and trapping him. He needed to be physically wrecked as well as being trapped. And I think that's why that spot wasn't just brutal for brutal sake. I think it made a lot of sense as well. It showed like Archer's ability to still physically dominate and destroy somebody when he needed it most. Um, and it has made Archer all over again. So it was an objective, regardless of like what you thought of it or how these matches work for you generally, like a, an absolute objective success because the people went nuts for it and Archer's good to go somehow, like back from the brink, effectively. Um, 
So yeah, like and and Hikuleo comes in and he's massive. Like <laughs> I'm having a proper like mom reaction to him. Oh, he's tall, isn't he? Like that would have been how my mom would have received every wrestler when I was a kid. He's tall. I and was I was like having my way. <laughs> yeah, like I'm going full at it, going full art Donovan over his height. So yeah, success. Um regardless of my subjective takes, this was definitely a, a successful and a, and a, like a strong closing segment to like a dynamite that wasn't strong all the way through. Exactly. Yeah. Great conclusion to the show. And now we move on to bloody hell, fight for the fallen. Uh, Hamlet, uh, just give a nod to your brilliant tweet that I saw this morning <laughs> regarding fight for the fallen and them not telling us how we have to pay for it. Getting a lot of replies letting me know it's free to air. Thanks. <laughs> It's a literal reply, guys, man. <laughs> Honestly, I did the thing this morning of like, oh, when have I ever been wrong about CM Punk? And oh, partially, obviously, about uh, that and Archer. Uh, I think you'll find you're wrong about Otis cashing in. And uh, <laughs> yes, that's the joke. But yeah, good performance by Agent Ambrose here. Uh, and congratulations to Hans uh, <laughs> Archer. Uh, your new IWGP US champion for this week at least. But let us know your thoughts on AEW Dynamite, uh, Dynamite Fighter Fest Night 2 on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Watch, they can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamflit at Michael Hamflit. Follow Michael Sidgwick at M Sidgwick. Follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at WhatCultureWWE. And make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. Quite a lot to discuss over the next few days, so probably worth subscribing if you haven't done so already. A lot of, uh, of uh, tidbits of news to maybe uh, slightly dissect in the coming days, weeks, and let's be honest, probably months. But for now, this has been the AEW Dynamite Review. My thanks to the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies... I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.